Best if you turn with me to the book of Galatians, chapter 5, verses 16 through 25. Let us pray. Lord, we thank You for Your presence with us this morning. We thank You, God, that You have chosen us, Lord, as a people to work in and to work through. God, we're grateful that when mercy found us, in one moment everything changed. That our old self was washed away. Lord, I pray, God, this morning that You would anoint our ears of our hearts that we can hear. God, our desire truly is to simply be Your servants. To truly hear when it's all said and done, well done, Thou good and faithful servant. God, we acknowledge that for that to happen, Lord, we need to do it Your way. We need Your directions. God, I ask this morning You'd help us to begin to to really get a grasp of an understanding of what the true church looks like. God, of the spiritual nature of Your people and the need for us to listen to You and to deny the flesh. God, I ask You to anoint me this morning to teach the Word properly, to rightly divide the Word of truth. But God, I do ask You to anoint us God, this morning, Your Word says that You are a rewarder of those who diligently seek You. God, I pray that those who have come out this morning seeking You, God, that You would reward them with wisdom from Your Word, revelation to its truth and its application to their lives. Lord, we also ask if there's anybody here this morning, God, that needs to be saved. Lord, I know I'm not speaking on the topic of salvation this morning, but Lord, Your Spirit has the ability to deal with our hearts where we are. And I ask this morning, God, if there be folks here this morning that truly need to be saved, God, that today would be the day the veil would come off of their hearts and, God, they would run to You with all of their life, turn it into Your hands, and place their faith in Jesus Christ and be saved. Have Your way with us. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so Galatians chapter 5. I want you to notice something. that I'm going to just mention briefly in verse 17. Probably one of the most important principles for a Christian to learn. Um, I'm just going to deal with it briefly because it's not part of the overall theme of this particular sermon series. But notice this statement in verse 17. For the flesh lusts against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. These are contrary to one another, so that you do not do the things that you wish. Okay, you ready back there, guys? 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 11. I'm going to use my Bible. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 11. For what man knows the things of a man except the spirit of the man which is in him? Even so, no one knows the things of God except the spirit of God. I want you to notice the small s in the word spirit of man and the large s in the spirit of God. 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 4. Actually, let's start in verse 3. 
For I indeed, as absent in body, but present in spirit, have already judged as though I were present him who has so done this deed. Verse 4, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you are gathered together along with my spirit, small s, with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ. Romans chapter 8 and verse 16. I've got about four more of these and then I'm going to get back to our text. just want to show you I'm not building a doctrine based off of one small passage. I'm actually being incredibly brief this morning. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit, small s, that we are the children of God. I'll go, let's look at Matthew 26, 41. I'll just stop there. Matthew chapter 26 and verse 41. Jesus said to His disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane, Watch and pray, lest you enter into temptation. The Spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Okay. I'm just going to give you the nuts and bolts of this. I plan on doing a full-length teaching on this topic of becoming the spiritual man. But I want to... It's important that the Christian understands that he has a spirit. And that the spirit is different from the soul. When God created man... He created man in His own image, similar to the tripart nature of God. You have Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Man is body, soul, and spirit. As a matter of fact, one last passage. Let's look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. As Paul prays for the Thessalonians. Verse 23. Now may the God of peace Himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, I'm going to be real quick because I really want to get to the fruits of the Spirit. But it's important that we have somewhat of an understanding and grasp of this for this all to make sense. And I promise you this, if you're a Christian and you have struggled for years with back into sin, I want to serve God. Back into sin, I want to serve God. I can't give this thing up. It seems to grip my life. And then over here, I want to serve God. If you will listen carefully to me this morning, I will tell you some things that you may have never heard that will help you get set free. My people perish for lack of knowledge. That's what the Word of God says, Hosea 6.4. We have to understand the way it works. Now, when God made man, man was the only creation, this is what made him above all others, that was able to communicate with God directly. Man communicated with God. Adam and Eve had total freedom to communicate with God. And they communicated with God through their spirit. What is the difference between the flesh, the soul, and the spirit? The flesh is the carnal nature part of me. It is my body. It is my, it is my base passions, my, my hunger, 
uh, my thirst, my lust. And when God made man, here was the way it was supposed to work. I thought about trying to draw a diagram, but I didn't want to spend a lot of time on this this morning. The soul is the place of the will. It is the mind, the will, and the emotions. And the spirit is the realm in which we communicate with God. Jesus said the day is coming when man will, must worship Him in spirit and in truth. The way God designed man to work was this. The spirit of man was to commune with God and give directions to man's soul. And man's soul, the place of the will, and the decision would then agree with the spirit and the flesh would follow. When Adam and Eve sinned, that was severed. The relationship between man and God was severed. And they could no longer communicate with God through the spiritual realm, which in essence is death. So where did they begin getting their directions from? The flesh. Satan turned that whole thing upside down on its head. So man, since the fall, rather than taking his directions from his spirit who is communing with God... He is now taking his directions from the flesh. Whatever I feel like, that's what I do. Whatever I desire, that's what I need. Whatever I want, that's what I will get. The purpose of the cross was that we might be born again. That our spirit might come to life. Jesus said, he that is born of flesh is flesh, but he that is born of spirit is spirit. Jesus said to Nicodemus, a man must be born again. And so when we're born again, our spirit comes to life and we can then have communion with God. But here is the battle. The flesh still exists. And so now there is a dual nature. There is your spirit, which is now alive and longs and deserves and desires to serve God, that wants to serve God, it wants to commune with God, it wants to hear with God, it likes to pray. Jesus said the spirit dwelling, but the flesh is weak. And then you have your flesh that says, no, don't listen to that. That's not in your best interest. The flesh says, fulfill your lusts, fulfill your desires. Now, here is the tragedy and what I would call the the, the dirty secret of this whole thing. Christians have not come to accept, and I believe in large part by false teaching, that the flesh will never change. Hear me this morning. If you can grab a hold of this, it will change your life, Christian. The flesh never changes. What does it say? Back to our text in Galatians chapter 5. Verse 17, the flesh lusts against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. These are contrary to one another so that you do not do the things you wish. Lord, give us ears to hear this morning. Your flesh will never change. Never. Quit asking God to change it. He refuses to change it. The flesh is so wicked and evil, it is the only part of man that God says, I will destroy it. He gives the spirit new life. He washes the soul, but the flesh is going to die. The body goes to the ground and he gives us an entirely new body. My soul goes to heaven. My spirit goes to heaven. Not this flesh. God's given me a new body. 
a glorified body, the Word of God says. That's how God sees the flesh. I've already spent a whole lot more time on this than I wanted this morning, but a couple more minutes. In Romans chapter 6, God tells us to view the flesh, that old man, the old nature, as dead. Past tense, crucified with Christ. So this is our response, Christian. When the flesh rises its head up in my life and begins to appeal to wicked, selfish lust, my response is this. You are dead to me. Your voice no longer has authority and control in my life. But don't be surprised by its wickedness. You know what happens with so many Christians is this. They say, God changed me, God changed me, God changed me, God changed me. And what they really mean is God removed the wickedness of my flesh. And then they become confused and they think, am I not praying hard enough? Did God not really save me? Am I not really changed? How come I still lust the way I lust? How come I still desire selfish things the way I desire selfish things? How come there's still that taste for for that wickedness in that certain part of my life? I've asked God to change it. I've asked God to take it. Why is it still there? Listen, it's there because you're still flesh and bone. The flesh wars against the Spirit. They will never agree. And what most of you have been waiting for is for the flesh to come around one day and say, hey, the Spirit's right. God is good. Let's skip hand in hand the rest through life and only desire righteousness. It will never happen. You have to know that. And if you don't know that, you will fight this battle the wrong way your whole life. You will be condemned. You'll feel like there's something wrong with you. You'll live in in, in secret shame. You'll have certain areas of your life you're terrified to talk about because you don't want anybody to know that you struggle with this. Let me tell you why you struggle with it, man. Let me tell you why you struggle with it, sir. Because the flesh is desperately wicked and it wars against the Spirit. And it will always be flesh. But God will one day deliver us from it and give us a glorified body. Until then... We must learn that it is a battle. We must learn, and, and I'm telling you, when you see this, all the passages of Scripture that deal with this will change radically the way you view them. You finally understand it is a war between the flesh and the Spirit. It will humble you into realizing you're not as righteous as you think you are, and that you still need the shed blood of Jesus Christ as much today as you've ever needed it, And that you must continually and constantly yield to the Spirit, not the flesh. Now, until you've been born again, that's impossible. You have no communion with God. But church, this is the absolute base of our understanding of how we be Christians, how we walk the way we're supposed to walk, how we do what we're supposed to do. By yielding to the Spirit and not to the flesh. Many of you for years have been trying to get God to change your flesh. Many of you for maybe years have thought, God couldn't use me, I can't be involved in ministry, I can never function in this capacity, I can never do this thing, because my, I struggle in this area so much. Learn to deny the flesh. Quit trying to change it. It is an absolute, horrible, exhausting, and wasted effort to try to change your flesh. The flesh wars against the Spirit. So that's principle number one about learning as a church 
that we must follow the Spirit. We must learn to yield to the Spirit. If you can't do this in your own personal life, it'll be impossible for you to hear and commune with God in the deeper things of ministry. So what are the three things now, the the three main areas that the Spirit moves in and through the church? First of all, we see the fruits of the Spirit. Look at verse 22. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. The fruit of the Spirit. The fruits of the Spirit are different from the gifts of the Spirit. The fruits of the Spirit are something every single child of God should experience in their life. Every single one of us should. It is the fruit of the Spirit. Now, if you take an apple seed and you plant it in the ground, what's going to come up? An apple tree. The fruits of the Spirit, if the Spirit is planted in our hearts and we yield to the Spirit, not the flesh, will automatically produce these things. This is a thing that separates the fruits of the Spirit from the ministry gifts of the Spirit in Romans chapter 12 and in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Every one of us should have these. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. These are the things that the world should be able to look onto us and see in us. Now, all of these things can be counterfeited. Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, that's a word for patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. See how every one of these can be counterfeited. The question is, are these really, truly coming out of you through the power of the Holy Spirit? Is the Spirit of God, the fruit coming out of you, producing life in these things? Can I tell you one other interesting thing about the word fruit is that fruit produces more fruit which has life-giving seed in it. And so if I have true love that is truly a fruit of the true Spirit, that love, as it flows out of me, will produce life in other people. This is the, 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 what I would call the very start of us understanding what should be coming out of the church according to the Spirit. We've already established last week that it is the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit that gives the church life. Well, now what does the Word of God say? This regenerating power of the Holy Spirit should produce in us these things. Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. These are the things that the church should have coming out of her. And as we yield to the Spirit, these things happen. It's a supernatural love. It's the type of love that Jesus spoke about. Have you ever wondered... And have you ever struggled with when Jesus says to love your enemies and love to do good to those who spitefully use you? You can't really do that. Not from your heart. Without the power of the Holy Spirit, you can counterfeit it. You can make it look like that. But deep inside, you're hateful towards those who do you wrong. You're hateful towards those who don't see it the way you see it and who are contrary to what you want to do. In order for the real love, the love that drove Jesus to the cross, 
The love that Romans chapter 5 talks about when it says God commended His love towards us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. That type of love can only happen through the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit. Now, I'm going to move in just a moment to Romans chapter 12 and we're going to look at uh, the works of the Spirit within the church. But before I do, I want to say that if this does not happen and we move on to the works of the Spirit within the church, we're not moving anywhere. What good is a pastor who doesn't have these things ruling his life? What good is any type of person in any form of ministry? What good is a Christian that's out witnessing to their people at work and trying to share the story of the Gospel that does not have these things in their life? These have to come first. We have to allow the Spirit to be working in us and out of us before we can transition into what we would call positions within the church. So with that said, now let's move on to Romans chapter 12. Let's look at verses 4 through 8. Romans chapter 12, verses 4 through 8. For as we have many members in one body, but all the members do not have the same function. So we, being many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, let us use them. If prophecy, let us prophesy in proportion to our faith. Or ministry, let us use it in our ministering. He who teaches in teaching, he who exhorts in exhortation. He who gives with liberality, he who leads with diligence, he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. Okay, we see here now the idea that within the church, there are different members. There are different, and here's what I would call these. I would call these motivational gifts. And a person, which all of us have one form of motivational gift, a person with a motivational gift will see everything they do through that lens. That will begin to make sense, I believe, as I work through this. Let's just look at these one one at a time. We see here the first one, prophecy. Having then gifts, the gift is from what? The Holy Spirit. The gifts are according to grace. It's very important you understand that. What is grace? Unmerited favor. That means that when God gifts us with a certain spiritual gift, a certain motivational gift, it's by grace. That doesn't, therefore, God doesn't necessarily gift somebody with the gift of administration just because they're a boss. God doesn't gift somebody with the gift of prophecy because they have great speaking skills. God doesn't gift somebody with the gift of um, giving just because they had an inheritance that came to them. All these gifts are by grace and they are through the Holy Spirit only. But let's look at them one at a time. Prophecy. It says here, if prophecy, let us prophesy in proportion to our faith. People who prophesy are real things. 
We see this in Romans chapter 12. We see it in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and 1 Corinthians chapter 14. Let me first define prophet. This is not somebody in sense of, in the sense of Old Testament prophets who foretold future. This is not in the sense of somebody who says that they have heard a specific message from God and somehow it comes with the same authority as the Scriptures. Prophecy in the very purest sense simply means to hear from God and to proclaim it. To understand what God is trying to say to a people and then to communicate it to a people. Now he says here, that it is a gift of the church. So what is prophecy? It is the divine enablement to proclaim God's truth with power and clarity in a timely and culturally sensitive fashion for correction, repentance, or edification. It is the ability to reveal God's Word accurately. I want you to ask yourself, as I, as I go through these gifts, I want you to ask yourself, which one of these is me? Because I will bet, if you're wondering what is my spiritual motivational gift, I'll bet I'll cover it this morning. In the next 15 minutes. Ask yourself when I'm reading these things, does that apply to me? Did that hit home with me? Here's what people with the gift of prophecy typically ask. What went wrong and what caused this? How did we get to where we're at? People with the gift of prophecy generally think in the multitudes. They generally think in the large picture, culture. Prophecy is the primary motivational gift that I work out of. It's the lens through which I see. I'm always thinking about our culture. You've been here for years, you know. It just comes out. I don't do it intentionally, it just comes out. I, I say our nation a lot, don't I? I talk about the church as a whole a lot, don't I? That's the lens I see through. That's, that's what I see. I see through the lens of, of, of mass repentance. I see through the lens of the church as a whole. How did we get to where we're at? How did we get to a place where the powerless seems, powerlessness seems to plague us? How did we get to a place where, where, where this problem and this problem have occurred and how do we turn back the tide? That is the general mentality of somebody whose primary motivational gift is prophecy. These are characteristics. They are not qualifications. Remember, it is the gift of grace. But these are characteristics of somebody who functions out of the primary motivational gift of prophecy. They tend to be persuasive speakers. They can read people. They are often opinionated. They are typically very black and white. Bob Hilliard, do not laugh at me again. They often like large groups. The need to express thoughts and ideas verbally, especially regarding right and wrong. They have the tendency to make quick judgments and to speak up quickly. These are the dangers of this gift. The tendency to be proud, correcting people who are not their responsibility to correct, jumping to conclusions often, reinforcing a condemning spirit, Cutting off a person who has failed. Dwelling on the negative rather than the positive. Lacking cautiousness and tactfulness in expressing opinions. Demanding a positive response to a harsh rebuke. I have never done that. 
in the last five minutes. Accusing others of deception if they don't fully reveal faults. This is what people whose primary motivational gift is this prophetic gift that he's talking about in in Romans chapter 12. This is what they look like. The next one is ministry. Ministry is a word for service. Uh, It is actually the word where we get our word deacon for in our common language, which simply means to serve. We see here that ministry or service is an actual gift of the Spirit, motivational gift in the church. So what do people with this gift look like? The gift of service is the divine enablement to attach spiritual value to the accomplishment of physical tasks within the body of Christ. It is the ability to demonstrate love by meeting practical needs that releases other Christians for direct spiritual ministry. People with this gift ask, what can I do to help? People with this gift of ministry are those who are always thinking about the actual work that needs to be done. Um, This word ministry was used in um, the account of Jesus when he was tempted in the wilderness. And then it says what? It says angels came afterwards and ministered to him. This word is used of um, some of the ladies that follow Jesus. It says they ministered to him. This word is used of Jesus uh, when he talked to his disciples and washed their feet and said he talked about being a servant and said, as I have served you, so you go and do likewise. This word ministry encompasses that actual work, service. And people with this ministry gift, when they're thinking about how can I be of help, what can be great to be done in the church, they're typically those who think about physically doing something and and they're able to see the spiritual value in work. The typical thing they ask is very simple. What can I do to help? What are the characteristics of someone whose primary motivational spiritual gift is ministry? One of the characteristics is they don't need much public recognition. They don't actually like it too much. They have an ability to see practical needs and a desire to meet them. A joy in serving to help others for more important things. They often have a tendency to disregard their own personal health and their own comfort that they might serve somebody else. A characteristic of this person is that they have a difficult time saying no when they see so many projects that need to, get, that need to take place. Often a person with this gift has a desire to be affirmed that what they're doing makes a difference, even though they don't want public recognition. And they often have a feeling of not being qualified for spiritual leadership. What are the dangers of somebody whose primary motivational gift is service? Often they will neglect personal responsibilities to help others. Sometimes they accept too many jobs at one time. They are those who wear themselves out physically. They are too persistent in giving unrequested help to others. Sometimes they go around proper authorities in order to get jobs done. Sometimes they exclude others from helping on the job. 
These types of people are truly the most neglected people in the church, in the body. They're the people that you don't see working, but they're the ones that really make the things get done. It's interesting. This is an actual spiritual gift. These are the ones that when you come out to our fall festival and you're going to see nearly 400 people come in through this place and you're going to see a play go on and the kids are going to have a blast and there's going to be 20 booths and it's an amazing, unbelievable two hours of awesomeness fun. These are the people that made that happen. These are the people that set it up before you ever got there. These are the people who were there hours afterwards getting everything back in order so that we could have church the following morning. They go unnoticed. But their work is one of the most significant works in the entire process of that type of event. This is a ministry gift of serving. We see next the ministry gift of teaching. This is the divine enablement to understand and give detailed explanations of biblical truth. It is the ability to search out and validate truth which has been presented. People with this gift of teaching typically ask this question. What is truth? Where did you get that? And why? That's the lens that they think through. Their characteristics, they need to validate truth. Somebody whose true ministry gift is teaching is somebody that they really don't care how much they trust you and know you. They want to take that extra step to prove it themselves. To know beyond a shadow of a doubt this is truth if I'm going to teach it. They certify statements which have been made by others. They have a tendency to validate new truth by establishing systems of truth. People who really have this gift of teaching, they see in systems. They try to create ways to make sure that what I teach is accurate and right. And it passes this test, and then it passes this test, and then it passes this test. Therefore, it's safe to teach as truth. Often they have a prompting to give teaching credentials and to get them from others before listening. They have a desire to present truth in a systematic sequence. Some of the dangers of this ministry gift are becoming proud of their knowledge. Despising, listen to this, practical wisdom wisdom, and uneducated people. You might be surprised to you know a lot of times the teacher doesn't like the prophet so much. The prophet will take a, if he has to, he'll pick a stick up from the street on his way in and preach about a dead stick. And it'll drive the teacher nuts. And the prophet sometimes will be drive, drive, driven nuts by listening to the teacher just systematically expound truth. Here's the point, and I'm hoping you're beginning to see it. We need all of it, church. We are not meant to be cookie cutters. God's infinite divine plan for His church is one of diversity. And we need all of the gifts that God gives us. We need all of these different areas in the church for us to be a healthy, well-balanced church. But one of the dangers of someone whose primary motivational gift is teaching is that they can become proud of their knowledge. They can despise practical wisdom, especially if it comes from uneducated people. They can criticize sound teaching because of technical flaws. 
They often depend on human reasoning rather than on the Holy Spirit's teaching. And they often retreat to their own world of books when they're trying to determine truth. The teacher is the one throughout the years as I have preached out of my gift of prophecy is often flipping through their commentary to try to find out how that what I said wasn't exactly right. Back to the world of books. Next we see the gift of exhortation. This is a very important ministry in the church. He who exhorts with exhortation. What is exhortation? It is the divine ability to come alongside someone in their need of help and to give them encouragement, to reassure them, to strengthen them, to affirm them, and to challenge those who are discouraged or wavering in their faith. It is the ability to stimulate faith in another person. This is incredibly important. We need encouragers. In the world of negativity that we live in, in the world of when they come on the news and say, good evening, and then give you an entire 30 minutes to know why it's not a good evening. We need encouragers in the church. We, we need exhorters. People with this gift ask the question, what must be done to fix this? How can we move towards wholeness? They are loving, affirming, and concerned for other people. People with the gift of exhortation make great counselors. They have a motivation to urge people to their full spiritual potential. They challenge people to grow. They often have an ability to discern a person's spiritual growth and to speak to them at that level. They have a desire to give steps of action that will help people move towards spiritual maturity. This is what an exhorter does. What are some of the dangers of a person with this ministry? They often spend too much time with people who only want temporary solutions to their problems. Sometimes they raise the expectations of others prematurely, and then they become discouraged when there's a lack of results. A lot of times they'll take away from their personal or family time to counsel others. Sometimes people with the gift of exhortation will treat their family and their friends as projects rather than persons. The next ministry is giving. He who gives with liberality. Isn't that interesting that giving is an actual ministry gift? This is the divine enablement to earn money, manage it well, and to wisely contribute to the work of the Lord with cheerfulness and liberality. It is the ability to entrust personal assets to others for the furtherance of their ministry. Can I say that to some extent as Christians, all of us should have some level of fruit in these ministries? It's not like if God's given you the gift of exhortation, you can shirk your responsibility to give. Or it's not like because you give, you have no responsibility to be someone who searches truth. But these are gifts that God gives us and, and they motivate us. It was important for me to learn that. It was important for me to learn that I need to be able to identify people's gifts and to encourage them. 
As a young minister, I had a really difficult time with people who had the gift of giving. Because I felt like if I said anything or encouraged them, that maybe they would think they were special because of their giving. God had to deal with my heart on that and show me, son, there are people I have gifted with that ministry. It is needed within the church. And the same report that you give back to the exhorters about what a great job they have done and how they've changed somebody's life, the same way that you build up your teachers about what a good job they're doing, you need to be able to identify those who have a gift of giving and you need to communicate to them how their giving is impacting the kingdom. Because they need to know that. Because that's their gift. And if they don't know that their gift is impacting the kingdom, they'll go somewhere else where they can be convinced it is. Because they have a responsibility with their gift. They have a responsibility to know. People with this gift often ask, what can I give to meet the need? The word here is share and to give. Not necessarily money, but in our culture and in the way that that uh, things work, that's probably primarily where a person with this motivational gift is going to give out of their money. This person is characterized with generosity. Here are some of the characteristics of someone whose ministry gift is giving. They have a keen ability to discern wise investments in order to have more money available to give away. They have a desire to give quietly, without public notice. They have a motivation to give as if they were actually giving to the Lord at His promptings, not at man's appeals. They have a desire to give gifts which are high quality. They have an ability to test faithfulness and wisdom by how people handle funds. They have a tendency to practice personal frugality and ability to be content with the basic necessities of life. They often have an alertness to see what others, other people do with their money. What are some of the dangers? The tendency to be proud of the gift. Recognition. Emphasizing physical needs as opposed to spiritual needs. Causing family to resent gifts to others. Or from others. Sometimes listening to unscriptural counsel on money management. And sometimes putting pressure on people who give less. The final ministry gift here, actually two more, excuse me, we see leadership. He who leads with diligence. I'm, going to, I'm just going to be brief here and get through these. We'll stop in Romans 12 today. What is leadership? It's the divine ability to see what needs to be done, to set goals and attract, and to lead and motivate people to accomplish the work of ministry. It is the ability to coordinate the activities of others for the achievement of one common goal. People with the gift of leadership generally ask, what is the goal, where are we aiming, and what are the results? This is the type of person who can give vision, direction, who can mobilize people, someone who can lead and delegate, that they they can take charge, and they enjoy responsibility. Some of the characteristics... An ability to visualize a final result of a major undertaking. An ability to reduce major goals to smaller achievable tasks. An ability to know what resources are going to be needed for the task. 
These are the types of things with somebody who has the gift of leadership. Generally has. Some of the dangers of this person is that they'll view people as human resources rather than human beings. Using people to accomplish personal ambitions. Showing favoritism to those who appear to be more loyal. Taking charge of projects which are not God's directions. These are the things you have to be careful with if your primary ministry gift is leadership. And finally, mercy. Mercy, much like exhortation. It's the divine enablement to minister cheerfully and appropriately to people who are suffering. It is the gift of wanting to withhold just consequences from those who deserve it. And how much we need this ministry in the church. We need people who are merciful. People with this gift ask, how can I make somebody feel better? They typically have a high identification with people's hurts and people's needs. At the heart of it, their emotions are aroused. Their heart hurts for those who are hurting. They often have an ability to detect and discern people's feelings. After a meeting where you're talking with a person that has the gift of mercy, you might say, that was a great meeting. And they might say, we really need to pray for that guy. He's hurting right now. Didn't you pick up on the signals? Didn't you see the way he was tonight? Didn't you see his demeanor? It's an ability to sense genuine love. It is the need for deep friendship. This is another thing that often characterizes these people. They need deep friendships in which there is mutual commitment. It is the tendency to react harshly when others are rejected. Some of the dangers are failing to be firm and decisive when necessary. Taking up offense from those who have been hurt, uh, offenses for those who have been hurt. In other words, trying to step in and, and somebody's been hurt or somebody's been done wrong. If you tend to try to step in and, and, and take that upon yourself, you might be someone who has the true gift of mercy. It's one of the dangers of it, but it's an indication that's your ministry gift. Often somebody with the gift of mercy will also really conflict with somebody with the gift of prophecy. The prophet sees what's wrong, and he's always talking about what's wrong and why you're suffering because what you did was wrong. And if you quit doing what was wrong, you wouldn't feel the way you feel. Sir, turn around, serve God, be right. Sounds like I'm preaching again, doesn't it? And the person with mercy is saying, man, give him a break. Who's right? Both of us are. This is why we need to understand our motivational gifts. This is why we need each other. You need two arms, two legs, two eyes, two ears. We as a body must learn to honor each other's motivational gifts. And by motivational, I want, I want to explain that. I'm almost done. I, 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 a couple more minutes. I, just, I want to tie this up. I want you to understand this before we leave. By motivational, what, all of us, as I said, have some responsibility to these things. But your primary motivational gift is the lens that you look through. When we say, 
we're going to start a project, and our project is going to be reaching out to those in need in our community that um, during Christmas time can't afford gifts. What do you think? You want to know what I think? This will surprise you because if, if, if you don't have my prophetic gift and it's not your primary lens, let me tell you exactly what I think. This is the first thought that pops into my head about that type of ministry. How can we do whatever we do? I don't care what we give them. I don't care if it's money. I don't care if it's food. Somebody else figure that out. How can we find a way to use that as an opportunity to take the gospel to these people? That's what I'm thinking. That's the first thought that crosses my mind. Now, to someone who's greatly merciful and a person of edification and exhortation, you might be thinking, dude, where's your heart at? Let's show them love and compassion. The answer is yes. Let's do. And let's take them to work. And let's find a way to provide the need. See, there's a need for all of these. And whatever your motivational gift is, the primary lens you'll think through. If we talk about doing a project to take care of... Uh, uh, kids this Christmas that aren't going to have the ability to, to have toys. If your first thought is, let's give. And let's find a way to create some wealth so that we can do what we want to do and that nobody goes without anything. Your primary motiv- motivational gift is probably the gift of giving. If you think about that project and you think, I would like to be the type of person that would actually deliver the gift and spend some time with those kids. This might surprise you, but that terrifies me. I've done it before, and I'll probably do it again this year. That terrifies me doing that. I'm afraid I'll come across as cold and incompassionate, and I don't want to do that. I'd rather send somebody I know that's just going to love all over those kids, and those kids are going to know they feel loved. The point this morning, I've got to tie it up, and we'll pick back up here next week, and we'll just keep talking about what the church is actually supposed to look like, God's divine design for the true church. The point this morning is that God has made us diversified. And if you don't find a way to identify your primary motivational gift, you'll spend a lot of your Christian life not doing anything. But you are supposed to do something. Notice, one of the ministry gifts was not criticism. The Spirit edifies. The Spirit builds up. I want to encourage you. Ask God to help you get it settled. What is your motivational gift? And then begin to get it settled. How can I use this to impact the kingdom? Because really that's what matters. You want to stand before God and say, and have God say to you, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Well, you need to know, God, what have you primarily designed me to do? What is the primary gift you've placed in me and how can it be used to further your kingdom? How can it be used in the church? How can it be used in our evangelistic efforts? How can it be used, period, for lifting up your name and glorifying you and get to work with your gift? If you're an exhorter, Ask God to give you sensitivity to who needs to be exhorted. If you're you're someone whose ministry gift is mercy, get brave enough to start going to people and start showing them mercy. Find out their needs and, and tell them about the amazing grace and mercy of God. If it's giving, then give. If it's leading, then lead. And if you think you have a gift that God has gifted you with that's not being used, 
and you're part of this body, you need to talk to me as your pastor, and we need to talk about what we can possibly do to get you involved in the body that Christ has placed you in. And this morning, if you're not saved, you need to be saved. God has a place for you in His body. He has a place for you. He has a purpose for you. There is a reason for your existence. And you'll never fully embrace life and there will never be the full meaning until you embrace who God has designed you to be and you get about His business for your life. 